Vets from the Trenches, Musicians You Should Know. This is Nick Drozdov, a.k.a. Studio Man, acting as your host. Today my guest will be Professor of Music at North Park University in Chicago, band leader and crossover freelance trumpeter, Dr. Joe Will. Today we'll also have a bit of a Dixieland or trad jazz feel to it, as Joe has just released a wonderful new CD, Hear the Rolling Thunder, featuring his band, The Doctors of Dixie. I believe Joe will be able to shed a lot of light on what it's been like to survive in the music business in Chicago by virtue of his many years of uh, experience as a professional musician here in the area. Before we get to the interview, music and the duet du jour, I have some business to take care of as per usual. As a professional trumpeter, I like to support the folks who help me out in my efforts to both perform music and share the music of others via this little podcast. I endorse two companies right now. As always, I primarily play Getson trumpets. I use a Getson Eterna 4-valve piccolo, a Genesis B-flat, a Custom C, a 1971 large-bore B-flat Doc Severson horn for you trumpet geeks out there, and an Eterna 4-valve flugelhorn. These are all excellent instruments, and they're made right here in the USA. I am also an endorsing artist for the Wedge Mouthpieces Company on Gabriola Island in British Columbia. Here's a little promo for Dave Harrison. Wedge Mouthpieces are a truly unique design in the vast pool of fine mouthpieces available to trumpeters out there. The slightly ovate profile and contoured rims offer incredible flexibility, comfort, and endurance. Whether you are a high note player, a classical player. lead player because you know I'm all or a jazzer There is a wedge available to help you make the job easier to do. Additionally, wedge mouthpieces give you an advantage but do not create a dependency. So if for some reason, for example, if you forgot your mouthpieces and you have to play a conventional mouthpiece instead of your wedge, you'll have no problems making the switch. It should go without saying that all of the excerpts we've been listening to during this commercial were played on wedge mouthpieces. You can go to the Wedge website at www.wedgemouthpiece.com and fill out the questionnaire to help Dave Harrison set you up with a mouthpiece for your needs. Or you can just call him at 877-679-3343. That's 877-MP-WEDGE. 
I haven't talked to him personally. On a slightly special note, if you can arrange a personal meeting with Dave, it is well worth the trip to have him work with you face-to-face to help set you up with a totally custom fit. He will sit down and work with you at his computer to design a mouthpiece just for you. You can then adjourn to his huge studio to test the mouthpiece out to your heart's content. The Wedge Mouthpiece Company setting is as beautiful as it is welcoming. Dave is a gracious host. My recent two-day business trip up there felt more like a two-week vacation in the incredible bucolic setting of the factory on Gabriola Island. So if you need a new mouthpiece, get an edge with a wedge. Now on to our show. My guest today is Dr. Joel Lill, professor of music at North Park University on Chicago's north side. I've known Joel for nigh 40 years now. We've played countless gigs together in classical, jazz, big band, and jobbing environments. We currently play together in Jeff Hedberg's medium band, C11, playing the Marty Page repertoire book written for Mel Torme. Joe plays lead, and I play the jazz book. I have found Joe to be an absolutely amazing musician. He's easily one of the best sight readers I've ever met. He knows how to play all the styles, and knows how to fit into any section on any chair. Joe was also a very amicable and decent fellow to work with. He's also a very good friend. Joe enjoys another unique position in the world of trumpets. As part of his doctoral work at Northwestern University, Joe wrote a thesis on Ben's trumpets and is widely regarded as one of the top historians on the unique topic of Ben's trumpets and cornets. Joe has just released a new CD, Hear the Rolling Thunder, featuring his band, The Doctors of Dixie, recorded live in studio. The musicians are among the best of the best in Chicago when it comes to interpreting traditional jazz or Dixieland. Audrey Morrison is on trombone. Rich Armandi is on tuba. Mike Lill, Joe's brother, is playing drums. Gus Friedlander is playing the banjo. And Kurt Bjorling is on clarinet. Joe leads the band on, yes, a Benj cornet, and did all of the arrangements. Before we get to the interview and the CD, let's hear Joe in a couple of different styles. These tracks were lifted from some live recordings, in some cases with handheld devices. You can certainly hear his skills here. First, here is Joe on piccolo trumpet. His wife, Cheryl Kreiman, is the vocalist. And after that, we'll hear Joe playing Amazing Grace in a special setting with a brass ensemble.
Finally, here's Joel playing lead trumpet with Jeff Hedberg's C-11. Holding hands at midnight Meet the starry sky Nice work if you can get it and you can get it if you try Nice work if you can get it Nice work if you can get it On to the interview. Okay. All right. Uh, Joel, really glad to have you here today. Thanks for doing this. It really means a lot to me that you're willing to come out and do this thing. Well, thanks, Nick. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. Uh, we've known each other a real long time. And so uh, it's kind of fun to you know, dig in a little bit and find out more about you that I might not already know just from hanging out on gigs. Um, when did you decide to make music your life's work? How, how did you know this is something you wanted to do? That's funny. It's a question I get a lot since I teach at a university. I, yeah. I do a lot with, uh, you know, academic advising and kind of career advising goes with academic advising. And students ask me that question all the time. And what's really funny is I still haven't decided that. <laughs> and the reason is I started so young playing and started so young playing gigs that I just never stopped. I certainly made some career decisions along the way, especially regarding academia. But as far as playing the trumpet, I never reached a point where I said, you know, this is what I want to do. I just was already doing it. In great part, because again, starting so early, yeah. when uh, I started playing, of course, end of fifth grade, trying out horn or end of fourth grade, trying out horns. I've got a good story there, too, okay. for you. But, yeah, bring it on. <laughs> um, I am the oldest of eight kids. Yeah. And so my role model were my cousins. They also had eight kids, and the oldest son was six years older than me. And he played trumpet uh, for the St. Alexis Vikings marching band <laughs> back in the days of the Nisi Ambassadors and all those others. And we'd go see him. And he's my oldest cousin, and I would have jumped off a roof if he'd have jumped off a roof. <laughs> yeah. And so we get to the end of fourth grade, and I go in. And the band director is this, you know, kind of Martinet Eastern European guy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he, I say, I want to play the trumpet. And he takes one look and he looks at my face and he goes, no, you, you would not ever be any good at the trumpet. You're going to play clarinet. Really? Yeah, really. You're wow. going to play clarinet. So I did the only thing a fourth grader could do into a person of responsibility. I cried. <laughs> and he said, well, well, we'll let you try it, but we don't have any more trumpets so if you want to try that we're going to give you a mellophone okay and so mellophone like a backward french horn with piston yeah, valves yeah. and of course i was a tiny little kid uh -huh. and my mom can still see me you know dragging <laughs> this mellophone through the snow until they bought a little while later the only horn my parents ever bought for me a $75 cornet from Prescott Reed on Irving Park. Oh, my. And they had to actually get a loan, you know, to wow. do it. 
Whoa. And they did. And that was the only instrument anybody's ever purchased for me oh, in my really life. cool. Yeah. Yeah, when I first got started, I had to mow lawns to get enough money to buy a horn. That's really I worked at a car wash. Yeah. And okay. when I got old enough to work at a car wash, um, I did that. And then I bought my first, first decent trumpet. How did you start working? What, how did your career actually begin? What transpired as you started to play for a living? What happened is very early on, being born in 1955, I was exactly the right age. <laughs> Baby boomers. To, to be in the, in, the, in the rock bands of the time. And when okay. we moved to where we moved on Damon Avenue, down the block, these guys had a rock band, a garage band, right? Okay. And they were playing, but they wanted to start doing Chicago and yeah. things like that. Yeah. And they heard there was a trumpet player down the block. And so they asked me to come down. So I joined, the, I was the youngest one in the band, and I was in eighth grade. Wow. In eighth grade, we started doing gigs, because they were all two, three, or four years older than I was. Yeah. And so in eighth grade, I actually played my own eighth grade graduation dance. Oh, that's wild. Band. And we started playing, this is, you know, late 60s. Uh, we were playing USO clubs downtown. Oh, and so I was in eighth grade and a freshman in high school playing... You know, playing gigs, You're playing professionally hops. in high school. Professionally, with, well, yeah, yeah, but we were, yeah. and so I would play a sock hop on a Friday night and a youth orchestra on a Saturday morning when I was in eighth grade. Wild. And wow. everything just actually kept developing from there. Yeah. Okay. That's it. So you've been a professional musician for almost all your life. That feels that way. Yeah. Yeah. Now you're. Uh, you are a jobbing band leader still. You're last of a, of a dying breed. Um, uh, talk a little bit about jobbing, because hopefully a lot of the people who are listening to this show are potential professional musicians of the future. And uh, the the requirements of what you have to be able to do as a musician have been sort of changing and mutating over the years. Can you talk a little bit about, a little bit about what uh, skill sets one would need to develop to have been a professional musician when you were coming up and maybe address how that may have changed over the years as a professor. It has changed over the years. Uh, I ended up running the band that I still run. And uh -huh. fortunately, I, I don't get to say this every week, but yeah, we'll be playing a wedding reception <laughs> on, on Saturday night. Great. Uh, but it, that evolved. So I was in the rock bands playing along. And in those days, it ended up being the best oral skills ear training you could ever okay. want. Yeah. Because we take all these Chicago licks, Blood, Sweat, and Tears licks. The second rock band I was in was one of the first integrated bands in Chicago. Okay. And it was called the Black Light Company on oh, purpose. Wow. And yeah. those guys, the, the the black musicians in the group, brought these influences. They didn't like Motown at all. They loved Stax. They loved the Memphis stuff. Okay. So really, I played all the Blues Brothers stuff the first time around. Oh, wow. You know, Soul Man and Can't Turn yeah. You Loose and everything else. The first time around we would take all those horn licks off the record. We wouldn't write them down. I, I could have written them down because of my high school education, but we would take them all off and it turned out to be the best. You know, I was doing transcriptions before anybody said, okay, you should do transcriptions. And then I ended up in a polka band. Yeah. You know, they needed another trumpet and I joined that. And that ended up evolving after the accordion player leader got arrested off stage for non paying child support. Oh. In 1979, and we had a gig the next day. Oh, no. so I called my friend Andrew to come play on keyboard, yeah. and we ended up going from there. And I ended—I've been running that band since 1979. Oh, I'll be darned. 
But doing jobbing, both with my own band and others, used to entail you needed to know a million tunes. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I learned them from a couple of really important sources. I started playing Orthodox Jewish gigs around 1979. Okay. Uh, because of Steve Atlas, yeah, who was at Amundsen High School playing trumpet when I was at Lane playing trumpet. Okay. So we knew each other. He'd heard of me, and he had me come on and play. The drummer on that band was a guy named Bill Bozen. Sure. And yeah. then Bill went off and started his own band yeah. and hired me as his trumpeter. That's all great, and that, that was wonderful for the pocketbook, and they tended to play a lot on Sundays, and my yeah. band didn't. Yeah, okay, that's great. But the people I came in contact with is almost the most important part. Yeah. All these people, and in dinner music, were just playing tunes, and they're calling tunes like crazy. Yeah. And Lee Burswald and Merwin Stillerman and people like that who are gone now. And at the end, Frank Caruso. Oh, yeah. Good and, and so these guys would call tunes, and if I didn't know them, well, I learned them. Yeah, you have to. You know, they look at you funny. At the, if you're lucky, that's all they did. That's all they did. Well, I was, you know, securely ensconced on this band. Yeah. But then the other one that was influ influential for that was when I started playing for Franz Mettler. Okay. And yeah. my first night with Franz, he used to do this five-hour thing at the concert room downtown. Sure, sure. And... About three hours of it was just playing tunes, and two hours was playing the show, a couple the show. shows. Right, right. The shows were written up. You had yeah. to play what was written. That part has just never been a problem for me. I could always read. You could read, sight read very well. Yeah. And uh, so it was that part. But I remember the very first night I subbed on that band, I wrote down in those days every tune I didn't know on a piece of paper. And that very first night, I wrote down 22 tunes. <laughs> yeah. And you know... I, I got called about a month later to come down and play again. And those guys knew. They called virtually every one of those tunes that I didn't know. Uh -huh. By then, I'd learned 17 of them. Okay. And that had to really help. Yeah. That kind of secured my spot. Yeah. But, but if I hadn't done that homework, I'm not sure I would have become like the first call sub. Well, when I first started doing the same sort of thing, I was working with a uh, mentor teacher Neil Dunlap uh, from IIT, and Neil told me he said, "You, if you're going to get out there, you got to know tunes, or you're going to be in big trouble." And I show up on gigs, and they call tunes I didn't know, and I did the same thing. I'd make a note and go home and learn them, uh, and then you start having to learn them in different keys because you get singers who come out in the band saying, "Like, oh, I don't want to do it in the standard key; they do it in some up a tritone or something, you know, obnoxious." But yeah, that was a big deal. I mean, Dave, uh, when I was talking to Dave Frolicksing in the previous interview, um, we talked about other players in town that impressed us. I mean, for me, we were just chat chatting earlier about Don Sohan. Uh, for those of you on the audience, Don Sohan is a, uh, what we might, for lack of a better term, call an old-timer from Chicago. But Don, uh, you know, Joe and I have worked with Don. Don just knew every tune ever. I, I've never heard him not know a tune. It's just mind-boggling. And models like that can be uh, really hard to live up to. Um, okay, so the knowing a million tunes, that was one thing. That was one thing. But okay. then the next thing is, then the bands started to evolve into playing, obviously, they were playing rock tunes along the way. Yeah. And it wasn't so much important that you knew the tunes. It was important that you knew what your what the right thing is to play. Okay. And a number of bands would have horn charts written out. Yeah. But a lot of them wouldn't. Mm -hmm. And so you needed to know, I, I played on a band two weeks ago, and 
all of a sudden, you know, they called, you know, superstition. Right. Fine. You know, and I was expected to know yeah. all the horn licks in superstition. They yeah. didn't have them written down. Right. right. And fine. I know all the horn licks in superstition. Sure. But that became really important because not only just for the leaders, but for the other musicians on the band, especially the other horn players. Uh-huh. They know what you should know, you know, what you're supposed to know. Right. And if you don't know that, your name doesn't get passed around yeah. in quite the same way. And this Chicago is the biggest little city in the world or the littlest big city in the world. I don't oh, know why. Yeah. I get the but, idea. <laughs> but, it, but it is about reputation and what you are capable of doing. If mm-hmm. you're going to get called a sub, if somebody calls and asks me for a trumpet sub, I can say, you should call Nick Drozdoff. He'd be the perfect guy for this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Why do I know that? Because I played with you. Right, I know what you right. do. And that's how it works in Chicago. Because otherwise, there's somebody else who actually could do it. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's interesting. I'm um, seeing an awful lot of the camaraderie thing with up-and-coming musicians, too. The millennials are getting out there. Uh, they're working with each other and recommending each other. That's another issue, but I do think it's kind of nice to see that that tradition uh, in Chicago, big little city, um, is still out there. Um, so knowing tunes um, and knowing how to play horn licks uh, on old rock tunes and things, would there be any other uh, specific skill sets that you think are still a must-have if you're going to work in Chicago? Well, you, you have to be a good person to deal with. Okay. Because it's Chicago, and you and I could both name... 50 trumpet players very quickly. <laughs> Easily. Who could play very well. Yeah. You know, and then why should somebody call you? And the other part that I I actually try to impart a lot to my my students, I, I teach at North Park University, and so I have the concert band and jazz band, and the, the thing I always tell them when they come in is, if I can give you one gift, you know, before you leave, it's the gift of radar. Okay. Of, of yeah. being aware. A lot of them, let's say it's a, a clarinet player. They might come from a high school band that's got 25 clarinets in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, now they're in my band, and we don't have 10. Yeah. And so you can't just go along with the herd. You have to be aware. You have to be watching. And even the good musicians I get as freshmen generally aren't really good at being aware of their surroundings. And I play even now with lots of good musicians in town who don't necessarily have great radar. Yeah. You know, something goes sideways, and they're just... They don't anticipate it. Yeah, yeah. And that's important. And for me as a leader, you're asking me what skill sets yeah. people should have. Right, right. I want them to have radar. I don't want, you know, yes, I have charts for my band. And I kind of expect them to stay on the chart. Right. But things can happen. We can extend things. The, the magic of live music is we're not constrained to the four minutes and three seconds of the tune. Right. If the place is going nuts, we can expand it. I need people that will that I can catch their eye. I know that they're looking around, they're aware. And there are some musicians in town who are really great musicians who are just very tunnel visioned. Yeah. And I really encourage people to develop their radar. Yeah, that's a very interesting thought. Interesting choice of word metaphor too, because that's something I've heard used many times before. Um, uh, when I think of Joel Lill, one of the big things that leaps out at me is a skill set that you have that I think you are known for, though you may not talk about it, uh, is your sight reading. Um, uh, I've always been impressed with the fact that you know I can put something in front of you, or anybody can put something in front of you, and you're going to pretty much read it the first time. Um, and I think that would be 
a skill set that would be even real important for you know the young musicians too. Um, how did you develop that uh, the way you did? Because uh, you're you're uncanny with it. Thanks. Uh, what's funny is a lot of teachers get uh, pigeonholed into you know teaching what they had to work on, and uh-huh. I certainly have things in my playing that I've always worked on that I try to teach. But it's funny, I don't think I ever really worked on reading per se. Hmm. I've always, that's been something I've always been good at. However, in my teaching studio, Uh I am an absolute bear about reading Uh and have like make people do clapping charts and all sorts of things so that I can see into their brain, you know, what they're doing. Because we're trumpet players, we have a piece of tin in our mouths and we can't, you know, count, we can't do the guitar thing of count out loud while you play. Yeah, right, right. So I actually do a lot with clapping because I find that reading is is something that people aren't good at. Again, they come out of a, maybe a great, great high school band situation mm-hmm. where they had rehearsals five days a week. Exactly. And you really end up learning stuff by rote. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's just not going to do it. Never again are they going to have it. I have rehearsals two days a week at college. Yeah. Well, if they play in a community band, which I, I hope they, some of them will play professionally. Yeah. We just graduated a flute player in performance who's going to go off and get a master's at North Texas State. Mm-hmm. And you know what? She just it. might. Yeah. yeah. And uh, But other people, you know, it's going to be community bands or we get a lot of Romanian students at North Park who are real involved with their church brass band. Okay. They're going to be 75 and playing for five hours on a Sunday because that's what they do. Yeah. Which yeah. is fun. But they really need to read better because they're never going to get this rote rehearsal. Yeah. So yeah. I, I would love to have a secret that worked for me. Uh-huh. Instead, I end, end up, you know, coming up with ways to get people better at it all around me. Do you feel like it's a sense for you? It's a sense of focus being able when you talk about the radar, being able to be aware of what's going on around you. But um, personally, sometimes I'm thinking about stuff going on around me and that, whoops, wait, I just skipped a beat. Oops. Um, do you feel like it's a, a, an ability to focus that you've developed? Uh, I, I think that's probably pretty good. Yeah. My radar isn't on, as much what I'm sight reading, okay, you know, because I'm I'm pretty locked and loaded, okay. But yeah. but we read enough, and I, I think it's it's interesting that, you know, if we play a lot and read a lot, yeah, you know, we kind of stay in shape for that, yeah. Uh, but but I do realize that I I, w- I would love to say I developed it later on, yeah. But in high school, even I remember we did uh, the first. High school, fully high school production of West Side Story, my senior in high school. Mm-hmm. It was all city, had a theatrical troupe. Wow. The first year they did it. We even got a telegram from Bernstein saying, you know, congratulating us because we were the first all high school pit. Wow. Well, we went to the first rehearsal and I was, you know, I'm a trumpet player, fine, <laughs> fine little ego. You know, they throw the books in front of it and I'm going to, I'm going to read this thing. Yeah. Uh-huh. But it's West Side Story. So I, I hit lots of it, but yeah. I don't do it perfectly. And there's a sax player sitting about three chairs from me who nails it. Uh. He was the first person I ever played with who read better than I did. <laughs> and I don't feel too bad now because it turns out the sax player from the south side of Chicago uh-huh. named Steve Coleman, who is the Steve Coleman, who is like uh-huh. super famous jazz guy in New York. Okay. Yeah. And there he was in high school. We get the books for the first day and he reads Perfect. West Side Story. Yeah. yeah. On alto sax. Unreal. I still think of it. But it just also underscores that, yeah, I, even in high school, I could read. Yeah. Well, it's, 
Well, it's interesting to, to talk about that because, again, I've, I've always been kind of dazzled by your ability to do that. Um, uh, you mentioned your students a few times, and I should interject here, although it is in the introduction, uh, that you are Dr. Joel Lill um, and uh, professor of music at North Park uh, University. University, mm -hmm. okay. Um, talk to me a little bit about that experience. What's that, you know, what's it like teaching at that school? Uh, it's proven to be just a, a wonderful, a wonderful kind of a track for my life that yeah. I, I did not expect at all. I prepared for it a little bit, but didn't expect it. My bachelor's degree is from Northeastern Illinois University okay. in music ed. I am still certified huh. to teach six through 12. You kept that up. That's I kept that, well, you know, for five bucks a year for yeah. all these years. <laughs> but also for a long time at North Park, I wasn't tenured. Yeah. And if something happened, there was a change in the wind. Mm -hmm. I could go back and be in yeah. a classroom the next day. Although I knew I never wanted to do it. I was private teaching. My first private teaching job actually happened when I was still an undergrad. Somebody called Northeastern and asked a trumpet teacher if somebody would come to Old Orchard Junior High in Skokie and teach four sixth graders. And he goes, well, I've got a music ed trumpet player who I think would be good. And that started my teaching career. Within five or six years, I had 60 students a week. Like, but wow. When I finished my undergrad, I had 40. And then, so I was playing with the band, running the band then, and had all these students. Wow. And could have kept doing that, but I already knew, I, I always knew I would go back and get a master's. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I did, I took three years after my undergrad and then went back and went to DePaul for my master's in trumpet performance. Okay. Got to study with Ross B. Kraft. Yeah. And, and had a, a marvelous time in my two years there. Met lots of wonderful players who are still friends. Right. But I did it in the hopes that if, if a college adjunct position opened up, that I would I would have that. Yeah. I knew I didn't want to be a high school band director. My younger brother, Michael, yes. has been Doing for his whole career, and time. he's wonderful at it, and he loves it, and I'm happy for him. Yeah. And, uh, but then, and so it looks very linear now that I got the master's and then got the job at North Park, but no, it was three years, and they were playing a backyard jazz quintet in Northfield, not very far from here, actually. Yeah. And... We walk up to the bar on the break, and Lee Burswald was the piano player, and he and I have been playing for years together. Yeah. He walked up to the bar and said, anybody here interested in running a, a jazz band at North Park? Oh, my. And I said, sure. <laughs> and went in the next week, cut my hair. Shorter, <laughs> not off the top. That was already gone. But got, got a haircut, went in for the interview, and was hired just to do the jazz band at wow. North Park in 1988 for the fall. And I said, can I teach trumpet too? And she said, would you like to do that? Yeah, I'd like to oh, do that. Oh, my. But so it was very, very adjunct. Mm -hmm. And at a small school, they either give you more to do or they find somebody else to do it. Yeah, yeah. I fortunately fell into the more to do category mm -hmm. and went on. They gave me more classes. The concert band had died about 1981. For wow. Political, economic, and political reasons, I think. Mm. And in 92, I'd been there a couple of years and I looked around and said, we could restart the concert band. There's a core of people here. And uh, they let me as an adjunct. And wow. uh, I never thought I'd be a college concert band director. But wow. that happened. And then little by little, they gave me more. They made me the recruiter for 13 years. That made me full-time staff. Okay. Not faculty for that. Yeah. But staff and with benefits. Benefits are good. And then in 2005... I was accepted to start the doctoral program at Northwestern yeah, yeah. in trumpet performance with Charlie Geyer and Barbara Butler. 
and graduated two years later with my doctorate. And then I moved into, first of all, what they call professional. I was already in professional track at North Park. Okay. But I moved into tenure track. Tenure track. And right. uh, yeah. only about four or five years ago did I become a full professor with okay. tenure. And well, it's congratulations. my, it's my 31st year now. Yeah. I just finished. But all of these things, they, nobody at North Park told me to go get the doctorate. Yeah. But I just knew that I would never be tenure track. If you didn't. If right. I didn't. This and I'm making it sound like a chore. And one of the things is it, it just wasn't. My no, master's wasn't either. something wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. Two yeah. years with with you know, Charlie Geyer having you know 50 yeah. lessons with Charlie. I ended up with five lessons with Chris Martin along the way oh, at man. Northwestern. And conducting lessons with Mallory Thompson you know, okay. you know, in her class. Not lessons, private lessons. But wow. all of which has been just a gift yeah, you know, yeah. for for my own teaching, but uh, and yeah, no, we went to Elmhurst Jazz Festival again. Okay, it took about eight years. I started in '88, and the first time we went to the Elmhurst Fest was 1996, and that was the first time North Park had ever gone to a jazz festival in its history. Okay, and we've gone pretty much every year since, with at least a combo, but generally a combo and a big band. One of the things that has been something that's been a little bit of a problem for me as I play in big bands around Chicago, I'm sure you've noticed it too. There's a propensity for the big bands to be kind of um, uh, very white and maybe even sort of uh, unique age groups. It's, I don't think anybody has deliberately tried to do that, but it is a problem. I mean, this is black American music, and or certainly pays homage to it, or it should. Um, how is diversity uh, something that uh, North Park has dealt with, or how, how does that impact your experience down there? It's been really interesting over 31 years. Uh, when I first started there, it re, you know, the, the heritage of the school is Swedish, you know, okay. Swedish evangelical covenant, which was one of those 1850s offshoots of Lutheranism. Okay. And they ended up starting the school in Minnesota, which made total sense. And when they came down for the World's Columbian Exposition, okay. this huge religious gatherings for the first time, like in history of the world, yeah. you know, to have all of these religions in one place. Wow. And the Covenant people really liked Chicago and thought it was a place that you could do things. Okay. And so they moved down here, but it was very Swedish, very white. And when I was at Northeastern in the late 70s, we did two joint concerts, our concert band and North Park's concert band. Yeah. And yeah, I had never seen so many blonde girls in my entire life. <laughs> you know, and uh, it was just amazing. And when I started at North Park in 88, yeah, actually my first band was was all white and probably was for a little while. But one thing that's made me very happy and to watch and be part of over the years is how North Park has really embraced the city of Chicago along the way. Excellent. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. it's a much more it's the most diverse, you know, like Christian liberal arts school in the country. Okay. And it's one of the only Christian liberal arts school that's actually in a city. A big city. St. Xavier is on the south side. Okay. You know, very barely, but they are. Yeah. But almost, it doesn't exist anywhere else. It's yeah. like those schools all tend to be, you know, like the Wheaton model yeah. or the Bethel model, you know, things that are outside the big cities. Yeah. And North Park, when they're having economic downturns uh, earlier in their career, before I was there, yeah. twice had opportunities to move to the suburbs and people were going to donate the land if they moved out there. And uh -huh. one of those is Trinity International, which right. is up in Deerfield. Up in that Deerfield. could have been North Park. Really? Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. They prayed on it and thought about it, mm -hmm. and they decided 
to, to spend the money on rehabbing the buildings yeah. and staying in the city. But they've also em really embraced, and my bands now um, at North Park are, are quite diverse. That's you know, great to hear. Yeah. Probably more Latino that's, than black. Um, but still, that's part of Chicago. In, in general, you know, yeah. but, but we definitely have, have both. Yeah. And when you talk about big bands in the, in the area, it's funny because you know, the first big band I really played with uh, outside of school was uh, the Grandstand Band. Sure. I was one of the people who helped found it. Mm -hmm. We played at Biddy Mulligan's every week for years. I remember Biddy Mulligan's well. <laughs> and uh, we started it because there were only two big bands in town in the mid-70s. Yeah. Uh, and you know, Bob Stones and Dave Remington's at the time. Okay. Yeah. And there just weren't any others. Yeah. And we wanted to go play and we weren't going to get into those bands. So yeah. we started our own. Well, and well, who, who would know that all these years later, it's, it's yeah, still going. It's still be going. It's going. But, but that was a fairly... Fairly diverse band even then. Not totally, but I mean, we all knew each... It started with people who knew each other from Northeastern. Yeah. But in each section, even early on, yeah. you know, there were... You know, Steve Barry was on trombone very sure. early on. Yeah. Edwin, ja Edwin Ed Williams, Williams was yeah. on, you yeah. know, very early on. Vince Johnson was on. Vince is still playing. And then. still playing with <laughs> the band. Uh, you know, people like Marvin Davis and, and that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Rodney Clark. Sure. You know, all cycle through the trumpet section yeah and so i think it's actually in a lot of ways less diverse now at this point let's interject a track from joe cd here is china boy Thank you. 
diversity um i i never thought i do you remember when you were a young guy getting into t- into the business and you run into guys like byron baxter don sohan yes and they're all you know they're the white-haired you know uh elder statesmen and you know you're learning from them you know they're, they're telling you things and you're picking up ideas from them uh for me a big mentor was warren kind another guy uh do you do you ever find yourself in a position now when you show up in bands where somehow we turned into those guys? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> no. Absolutely. Especially when it's... I was doing dinner music for a, a gig you know, that I, I was a leader on uh, a couple of years ago. And it was a, a big... Well, I was like the sub-leader. I wasn't in charge. Yeah. And Frank Russo was on piano. Sure. And a whole bunch of other really wonderful musicians of different ages. Uh-huh. And they came up and said, for some of the cocktails, can you guys just play some waltzes? Some uh-huh. waltz medleys. Yeah. And after we got past Emily, and someday when a prince would come, okay, you're coming. <laughs> every other tune was played by Frank and me. Yeah. We were the only ones on the who band. Who knew the tunes. Who knew. I mean, we're going through, you know, in Chestnut's Fascination, Somewhere My Love. Yeah. Um, some of the Viennese things. Yeah. We're just yeah. going through things that we played 80 million times. Yeah. The guitar player didn't know them. Yeah. And it was a knowledgeable, experienced guitar player. But we're already at that age. We're we are. Sorry, we're, Nick. We are those guys. We are now. those guys. We're the old folks. Yeah, we are. But I was on. I didn't get so much the mentoring for trumpet players as I did from sax players. On friends, Franz Bentler's band, Lou Ott. Yeah, was a, a, a he was a sax player in the, yeah. but he would also go out and play viola. Yeah, Franz knew about as many tunes as anybody. Yeah, except for Lou. Every once in a while, when Franz was strolling, mm-hmm. he would you know he always get requests. Yeah. He would get stumped once in a while. Not often. Yeah. But he would. Lou never got stumped. Lou yeah. would go over and play it on his viola. And <laughs> and he was smart enough to tell me, okay, Franz is going to do this tune now. He doesn't really know it, and I only kind of know it, so don't try to play along. Uh-huh. Like, he was smart enough and was comfortable enough with me. Yeah, yeah. You know, Lenny Druss on yeah. the Bill Bozen band. Oh, I remember Lenny. And Bill Ewer were older sax players. Yeah. And I'll never forget... Lenny turned into a piano player and said, ask him if he knew a tune and said, and don't lie. You know, just, <laughs> oh, that's we, so funny. We, we can only do this tune if you know it. And uh, yeah, now we're, we're the guys who know more no, tunes no more than tunes. anybody. Yeah. You are a freelance musician, um, you know, outside of your professorial work. Um, uh, how would, can you bring any co- uh, thoughts to bear on the idea of being a freelancer versus having a steady gig? I mean, you did work a steady at the concert room to a certain extent. No, but I was a sub. You were a sub? No, I probably, my only steady gig of my life was two weeks playing uh, South Pacific, you know, downtown okay. for a show okay. somewhere along the way. But all the rest, no, I never went on the road. 
Okay. Um, because I was always working here in in jobbing things. You know, the band I was in at its peak was playing 100 gigs a year. Now they weren't very lucrative. They're, you know, you might play three polka gigs on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday yeah. night. Yeah. Maybe double up on a, a Sunday. But I was always playing. Okay. And in those days, it didn't take a lot of money to, to pay the rent. Yeah, well, it's not different from what it is now, that's for sure. No, no. Did, did and you ever do circus gigs? I did, but I was always a sub. You know, okay. I, w- I would come in and play yeah. once or twice on there. But it was always the, the most regular thing I did was being on the grandstand band all those years. Yeah, yeah. You know, being in it at the beginning, and then I ran it for two years okay. between 83 and 85. Okay. And stopped a month before my oldest daughter was born uh-huh. Some, something finally had to get yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh but no uh it, it's always been freelancing orchestra stuff too and you know being a sub or just you know a lot of them it's not even a sub they don't have regulars and they they pick up people did so, you do you find that working freelance where week after week you may be working with people that you don't see again for a long time uh adds a certain amount of excitement to it it does for me yeah, I I love the fact that two weeks ago I, I don't want to make this sound like this happens every yeah. week. It doesn't. Yeah. Two weeks ago I had like six things in five days. Yeah, yeah. and one was a twenties, thirties, you know, yeah. um, Dixie ish kind of band. Okay. The next night um, we were playing. You and I were playing at Fitzgerald's together. Right, right. On a big band. The next night I was playing okay. with Tower Brass. A rehearsal and then a Friday night concert right. for Tower Brass at Fourth Pres downtown, and those are guys that you know sub with the CSO or Milwaukee Symphony. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, real high high quality classical playing, yeah. and then on Saturday night I was a sideman on a jobbing date for a for a wedding band. Wow, and I love that. Now yeah. it means but my practice has to kind of reflect being ready for anything, and that's a different thing. Yeah, but but I I love. I guess I have a short attention span. I love doing all of it. Um, people ask me all the time, you know, what did you want to be? Did you want to be a classical player or a jazz uh-huh. player or whatever? And I mentioned earlier that I was playing in rock bands on Friday nights yeah, and youth right, orchestras. Right. And people would say, even when I was in high school, you have to make a decision and, and pick a lane. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And this is years before Winton proved that not only do you not have to pick a lane, but you'll be a more marketable player if you, if you don't pick a right, lane. Right. If, if you can. If you can... Be in one lane and be successful. Great. You were out playing with Maynard Ferguson when you were young. That's phenomenally wonderful. Okay. That wasn't happening for me. But I I never made that choice. I always was, I loved doing all of it. People yeah, yeah. saw me playing on a, a band, a jobbing band last week and saw me kind of jumping around the stage a little bit just from the trumpet spot and said, uh-huh. this must be your favorite thing to do. And I went, why do you think that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you look like you have, I have just as good a time when I'm sitting in an orchestra with the discipline yeah. that it takes to not fluff an attack. Yeah, right, right. Now, on a given day, it might be more fun depending on the conductor or the repertoire, but but I love that about the trumpet. I love that we get to do everything. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm right there with that. It's nice to hear you kind of um, uh, bring that all into focus there. Um, okay, you have a... CD that uh, you just released, and um, uh, we're going to be listening to some of that uh, in the show here. But uh, talk to me about the CD. You know, this is something uh, that obviously was uh, very important to you. We talked a little bit on the grandstand gig. Was it grandstand? 
Were we chatting about probably that? Yeah. yes. Yeah, down the Fitzgerald. I know it was at Fitzgerald's. I remember that. Um, oh, Grand, probably the APOL. Maybe that was it. The APOL yeah, began. Yeah. yeah. But in any case, um, uh, tell us about your CD. You know, just plug an, this thing. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's an interesting story. Yeah. Uh, I have the great fortune of being on a number of people's, you know, CDs yeah. for different things. You and I made two CDs together of, with Jeff Hedberg, you know, and it's... At least that. <laughs> and so it's it's fun to be on other people's, but I've always wanted to do my own, you know, have something with my name on it. And I always thought out of the three kind of possibilities, a classical one, a jazz quartet or quintet, or a Dixie, that Dixie would be the third on that list I would do. But that just ended up not being how it worked. North Park has provided me a number of connections, as you know, all of our tentacles, you know, go from everywhere. Yeah. We ended up playing with my jobbing band some of the Scandinavian, Swedish, Norwegian dinner dances, charity dances, or whatever, and they liked us, and so we kept playing them. Well, there was a, a gentleman who is a doctor, a retired doctor who went to North Park in the early 50s, and then he got accepted to McGill in Toronto for medical school in the days when you could get a medical degree without getting a bachelor's degree. Very wow. unthinkable these days. Yeah, yeah. But he went and did that, and then he was a doctor his whole life. He had a stroke a number of years ago, so he's, he was in 24-hour wheelchair care, could barely talk, but mentally was all there. Loved Dixieland music, and I did a party for a, for one of the, it's a nursing home, a senior home. Uh, last September, okay. they called, and I knew that the reason they wanted a Dixieland band because his fingerprints were on this. On that, yeah. So I put together my band, the Doctors of Dixie, which, you know, people say, oh, you named that after getting a doctor. And I went, no, I, I didn't. I named it 20 years before I ever went back to that. <laughs> we were doing uh, cruises on the Star of Chicago every Sunday. Okay. Dixieland yeah. cruise wow. on the boats. And I put together a band for that, and we played 100 times over a couple of years. And so I've always kept the name, the Doctors of Dixie. We cure what ails you. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so we, we played this thing, and I went over and talked to him because I knew he was there and asked him what he wanted to hear. And he said in his raspy voice, Saints. And I said, <laughs> we can play Saints. And we went and played Saints. Played the gig. Life was good. End of October, I got a couple of phone calls. Yeah. And I could barely make out the voice. And by about the third phone call, I figured out who it was. And it was Dr. Arthur Peterson. Yeah. Just very tough to hear with having the stroke. And essentially, he was saying, you guys should have a CD. Wow. And everybody says that. Yeah, of course we should. Yeah. He says, and I want to help make that happen. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. It, yeah. I, I was stunned in October, and I am no less stunned now in June. So we went in in January in three dates. And uh, with uh, some people I've played with a lot, Audrey Morrison and trombone, Richard Mondi and I played in brass quintets in high school together. Oh, wow. He's on tuba. My brother Michael's the drummer in my jobbing band. He's the drummer on this. And two people that I'd only played with on that September gig. I'd never played with Gus Friedlander on banjo before oh, yeah, or Kurt Bjorling yeah. on clarinet and soprano sax before. Um, they were the first time we worked together. And I just thought that day, within about 10 measures of the first tune, this is a band. Uh -huh. as opposed to six really good people playing together. You know, we all get that, and yeah. that's all good. But there, there was just an interaction, especially in the, the front line with Kurt and Audrey and me, yeah. that I just thought was special. Yeah. And I also thought, that's great for that gig. But so when we had the opportunity to record, it's like, 
you know, he liked this band. So did I. Yeah. So we came in, we recorded 13 tunes in three days. Wow. And then it was a couple of months of mixing and Dr. Peterson went down to Florida and I would send him like I would burn on CD and send him mixes. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then the beginning of April, the final mixes were done. We just had to do the max- yeah. mastering and I sent him down a CD of everything in order. Yeah. Final mix. I think we did one tweak after that. Yeah. Yeah. Sent it down to him on April 5th. We trade exchanged emails. Yeah. And he, he loved it. He'd been passing on cuts to friends. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, he said, I'll see you next week. I'm coming back to Chicago on Monday. Uh-huh. We'll get together. I was going to show him all the artwork then because that was all done. Yeah. Our good friend Steve Hashimoto did all the oh, artwork man. for this. Yeah. Steve did that. He did. He yeah. did a wonderful job. Well, he does great work. And, uh, and that night he died in his sleep. Oh, yeah. So I didn't get to see him again, but he heard the final mixes and loved them. Well, that's and beautiful. So I, I have this CD and it wouldn't exist without him. So my feeling of urgency to get the thing recorded and get it out there, you know, quickly proved to be, you know, you know pretty prescient that, you know, yeah. But he did get to hear it, and now we have this CD. And yeah, you can find it on iTunes. Yep. And CD Baby, it's out there. Or if you see me on a gig, you know, you can uh, get and, one from me. And, and what's your website again? Oh, uh, my website is www.musicbyjoelill.com. Let's drop in another track from Joe's CD. Here is When the Saints Go Marching In. Thank you. 
Time back to the interview. All right, Joe, we've covered a lot of turf here today, and this is just fascinating. That's what I love about doing this little podcast. Um, concluding question. Uh, here's the premise of the question. We want to encourage newer musicians to pursue their dreams. Uh, how would you advise them to do this wisely this day and age? I mean, my son decided to become a professional musician. We're kind of, when this happened, we're kind of, ooh, do we really want to do that? Um, so, uh, I guess this is particularly interesting from your, your point of view. You're a professor. You're teaching these young people. Uh, how would you advise them to pursue their dreams uh, intelligently um, nowadays in the artistic climate that we seem to be living in? It's fascinating to watch. It's fascinating to watch some of them actually succeeding in that. Yeah. In one part, there's, some of them have done the same thing that we did when we were young. Oh, yeah. You're finding cohort groups. You're finding people around you. I learned more about inversions of chords sitting in a class piano room with a friend of mine just playing Elton John tunes for uh-huh. hours on end, you know, just figuring it out because I'm not a good piano player, and but just figuring out how it works. But finding somebody that you can just talk to and bounce things off of, the students today are doing that. Yeah, They, they are finding these little groups. I have a guitar player who graduated a few years ago from North Park who's on tour with Lil Wayne now. Wow. Who knew Lil Wayne used a guitar? But he does. And another guy who's out doing his original music, you know, with a jazz group. And it's very, uh, it's really modern. It's not commercial dance kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's listening, but they are finding some success. I think, I think the biggest thing is, Two biggest things. Number one, you have to have a head like a rock, mm-hmm. like your son does, uh-huh. and where everybody's saying you can't do this, uh-huh. and you, you do it anyway. Yeah. Because it is no different now than it was when we were young. Okay. Because people told me then, yeah, you couldn't do this. Yeah. That it's not the same as it was 40 years ago <laughs> or 10 years ago. A they said exactly theme. the same thing. <laughs> History repeating itself. Yeah. But differently. It yeah. doesn't repeat itself exactly. And that they can do this, that if they find a path, they should follow it. And then the other part is be as good a musician as you can possibly be because you're going to need it. Yeah. Because the competition out there is tough. The competition out there was tough for us too. Yeah. We just didn't know it. We just did it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, you just have to really want to do it and then take advantage. Don't be a person. These students are the people who are not the ones that think they know everything already. Okay. You know, Find find mentors, find people to study with. We're in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. There there are people to study with, and that never ends. Yeah, it never ends. I'm 63, and one year ago I had my first lesson with John Hackstrom at the Chicago Symphony. Wow. Known him for years. Yeah, you know, but I never had a lesson with him. And you know, I've had lessons with really great teachers along the way. Yeah, and I learned stuff from John I never learned from anybody else. Yeah, 
it's out there. Yeah. You just can't be in this cocoon and think you know stuff or think that YouTube will give you everything. <laughs> Although I'm really jealous of the input that, you know, young students can get now yeah. that we Did we didn't have. get. If right. we'd had the Phil Smith CD for orchestral excerpts <laughs> when amazing. I was an undergrad, that would have gotten me light years ahead. Yeah, yeah. But the, but the technology exists, but it's available to everybody. Yeah, yeah. So they're going to have to still stand out from the crowd. That's interesting, yeah. Well, Joe, it's obvious to me that the students at North Park are getting some good advice, and that's a, you know, a real tribute to what you're doing down there. Thanks. Um, man, I cannot tell you how grateful I am that you were able to come out here and do this today. Joe, thanks so much, thanks so much for doing this. Really oh, my it. pleasure. It's always a pleasure to play with you today <laughs> and all the times we get to play together. All right, Joe. Thanks, man. Have a good day. You too. All right. I want to thank Dr. Joe Lill for his insights, his experience, and his finely honed skills as one of Chicago's busiest freelance trumpeters. I also want to thank him for his many years of friendship. If you're interested in Joe's CD, Here of the Rolling Thunder, with the Doctors of Dixie, check them out on CD Baby and iTunes. You can also go to Joe's website, www.musicbyjoelill.com. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Duets from the Trenches, Musicians You Should Know. If you did, please give us a favorable rating. If you'd like to place an ad here, just reach out to me via my website, www.nickdrawsoff.com. I've provided various ways you can contact me there. Beginning in July, I'm going to be adding to the format of the show. I'll be introducing roundtable discussions with musicians on various gigs that I play in jazz clubs around the country. My first effort in that vein will be with the Shoutsex and Big Band, and it's sure to be a very interesting show. Until then, this is Nick Drawstoff, a.k.a. Studio Man, saying thanks for listening. Don't ever stop the music. Peace. Thank you.